0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Nathan Heffel. Donald Trump's choice for Supreme Court justice is a man with deep ties to Colorado. Neil Gorsuch was born here and is a fourth-generation Coloradan. He left for school, eventually returning to serve on the 10th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Denver. Gorsuch lives in Boulder and is an avid outdoorsman who likes to fly fish, hike, and ski. We wanted to learn more about him, so we've turned to Janie Nitza, she clerked for Gorsuch in Denver from 2008 to 2009, and now has a fellowship at Harvard Law School. Janie, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: What was it like to work for Judge Neil Gorsuch? Uh,
1: well, honestly, it was just an incredible experience. He's a, a fantastic both judge and man, um, and I think as a as a young uh, lawyer coming out of law school at the time, whoever you clerk for is a Quite, you know, they make quite an impression on on you again as a person and as a lawyer going forward. And so, one thing uh, I would say that always struck me about the judges, and I know he's spoken about this before, both in speeches and as uh, at his nomination last night, is that he he truly does decide cases according to law, not his policy preferences. And that was something that was evident on a day to day basis, and that uh, that makes quite an impression on a young lawyer because I feel like I am not jaded in a way that some of my uh, some of my fellow lawyers are, because I, I view judges as really doing what they're supposed to be doing.
0: Do, do you think others viewed him the same way?
1: I do, absolutely. Um, I think it's impossible to have clerked for him and not have had that impression.
0: He's expected to be a reliable conservative on the bench and considers himself an originalist. What does the term originalist mean?
1: Sure. So an originalist is one who um, believes that we should interpret the Constitution according to uh, the original understanding of the founders who drafted it and passed it along to us, as opposed to, say, um, Again, injecting uh, one's policy preferences, viewing it more as a living document that uh, that is altered, uh, altered through the ages. And And, uh, after all, there is a uh, there is a process for amending the the Constitution and is one that rests with the people and not with uh, the judiciary.
0: And do you consider him a reliable conservative then? It sounds like you do.
1: Yeah, I think he's a I think it's right that he's uh, to say that he's a mainstream conservative. He's an originalist. He's a textualist. um, Both are mainstream conservative jurisprudential philosophies. And
0: Gorsuch has praised the late Antonin Scalia, whose seat he'll fill if confirmed for being a textualist. What does that mean exactly?
1: Sure. So, um, textualist, similarly to an originalist, textualist applies to uh, when a judge is interpreting a statute. Uh, so, textualists believe that you should, uh, as a judge, follow the text of a statute and and again, not not inject your own own views into it. And uh, part of the rationale there is that the Texas statute was passed by Congress, who are the elected uh, representatives of the people. the um, Judiciary, of course, is is not uh, directly responsive to to the people, and so. Uh, textualist believe that judges should should not uh, basically do politics by other means.
0: So is that something that Gorsuch will will abide by or follow that, that textualist view?
1: Uh, and again, yes, he absolutely is a originalist and a textualist, and uh, he will carry that. I have no doubt he will carry that forward uh, if confirmed as an associate justice.
0: What, what was the relationship between the late judge and Anton Scalia?
1: Yeah. So I know that they were um, they were friends. I believe that uh, the justice came out to fly fish in Colorado with the judge ones. Um, and uh, the judge has sent at this point, I believe, three clerks um, to or at this point, it won't be tomorrow going forward, sadly, um, uh, three clerks to clerk for Justice Scalia. And I think that that says something as well, of what Justice Scalia thought of thought of the judge and thought highly of him to to have taken his clerks on.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters from CPR News. We're speaking with Janie Nitza. She clerked for President Trump's Supreme Court nominee, Judge Neil Gorsuch, from 2008 and 2009. She now has a fellowship at Harvard Law School. Uh, People often talk about Gorsuch's gift for writing. Uh, What is about his writing that, that stands out particularly to you?
1: Sure. I think there's actually two things that stand out for me. One is it's it's an accessible form of writing. I think some judges write opinions that are accessible really largely to solely the, the sort of legal community, whereas a judge's opinions are accessible to lay persons as well. And I I think, um, I think that's a good thing because, after all, um, the people have to follow the law, um, everyone, and so understanding, um, understanding the opinion is important. Uh, so one is accessibility, and two, I would say that there's, there's sort of a sparkling wit and humor uh, that comes through the opinions. I think that folks have rightly pointed out that he shares that with Justice Scalia.
0: I want to talk about some of the cases uh, that the judge is known for. His Hobby Lobby decision made him a favorite with conservatives. Can you give us a brief idea of his ruling?
1: Sure. So um, Judge Gorsuch joined um, opinion out of the Tenth Circuit that held that for-profit corporations uh, were uh, persons under what's called the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which is a statute passed by Congress expanding protections for uh, religious adherence. Um the, uh, the case wound up in the Supreme Court, as um, many listeners will know, and the decision was affirmed by the Supreme Court.
0: And, and another decision uh, that also uh, people have looked at is, is his decision on how much authority federal agencies should have is another reason uh, he was Trump's pick. Can you talk about that case with federal authority and, and the agencies and things like that?
1: Sure. So that was a case. So basically, there's a doctrine out there called Chevron Doctrine and a series of cases that have followed um, where the Supreme Court held that essentially the judiciary should defer to um, agency interpretations of of their authority. So agency interpretations of statutory authority that's granted to them. Um, the judge... Uh, Criticized in a separate opinion, he of course follows Supreme Court precedent as a um, as an appellate judge. But in a separate opinion, he criticized this doctrine as sort of subversive of our constitutional framework, which, after all, has judges um, uh, interpreting statutes and, and and not sort of the executive branch, which are of course administrative agencies.
0: Should there be concern from from people who may not hear, uh, hold a, con, a conservative view of of of, of people on the Supreme Court, judges on the Supreme Court, is there a concern there that people should be thinking about?
1: Uh, I'm sorry, a concern of what, if you could repeat the question?
0: Well, in terms of the the judge's decisions, uh, in terms of uh, maybe uh, how he feels on certain decisions, is it a concern for people who may not think that there should be such a strict uh, adherence to the Constitution in that sense?
1: Um, I, I apologize. I'm not sure I understand the, the question. Um, he has a reverence for the Constitution. He follows the Constitution, which is are. our Charter of Liberties. Um, I'm not sure I understand I, what the concern would be with a justice who, um, and who I follows think, that.
0: And I think that's that's the answer that, that that we're looking for. We we also want to talk about uh, his thoughts on euthanasia. Of course, Colorado has a law now that that is directly tied to that. What are his thoughts about that?
1: So he has written a book on the topic. Um, I... Uh, I don't believe he's ever decided a case on it. Um, certainly not, um, not my term. Um, but he he has made a case in a in a book that sort of stemmed out of his uh, PhD studies at Oxford, where he makes a case against um, laws permitting sort of doctor assisted. Uh, suicide.
0: Right, and ultimately Gorsuch says he favors laws banning the practice. Quote uh, in his book, based on the idea that all human beings are intrinsically valuable, and the intentional taking of human life by private persons is always wrong. Do you think that may have any bearing on how he may view abortion, for example?
1: Look, I'm really not in a position to speak to that, simply because again, he I, I don't believe he does decide any abortion cases um, while sitting uh, sitting on the tenth circuit. And, and I think that while the book certainly espouses his uh, personal views, um, I, I can't speak to how he would be as a jurist on the issue. Uh, I can say that he he does truly decide the cases that come before him um, on the basis of the Constitution and the law, and I, I have no doubt that he would do that in any case, including ones in, uh, that involve abortion.
0: Uh, and finally, what do you see as his relationship to the state of Colorado?
1: <laughs> he, <laughs> we used to we used to joke as clerks that. Um, the, his true calling is the head of the Colorado uh, Tourist Board because he absolutely loves Colorado. Uh, we had a separate joke that he uh, wouldn't hire a clerk that he thought would enjoy Colorado. I mean, he absolutely adores it. Uh, we would go hiking with him, skiing with him. You know, the first question he would ask us on Monday mornings was, you know, where did you go skiing or where did you go hiking this weekend? Um, our, our response was usually, you know, judge, we were working. Um, <laughs> are,
0: are you but... still in touch with him then? Or do, you, do you still keep in contact?
1: Yeah, he's, an, he's a wonderful mentor for all of his clerks and certainly for me. And so um, I check in with him every now and then. And certainly if I ever, um, you know, desire some career advice, he, he's actually the first person I call. And uh, and I have to say that the first his first answer is always, um, you know, what can I do to help you? He's really sort of an enormously generous spirit.
0: Janie, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Of course. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: Janie Nitsa clerked for President Trump's nominee for the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, from 2008 to 2009. She's now a fellow and lecturer at Harvard Law School. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. When Denver police released a draft last month of a new use of force policy, there was immediate criticism. Some said the 10-page document included vague and ambiguous language. Others wondered why they weren't consulted before the new policy was crafted and released. Yesterday on Colorado Matters, Denver Police Chief Robert White responded to some of those concerns. Today, we hear reaction from Lisa Calderon of the Colorado Latino Forum, one of the community groups unhappy with the policy. Lisa, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Before we begin, we'd like to say that we invited Denver Independent Monitor Nicholas Mitchell to join us today, but he declined. We also reached out to the police union, but our telephone calls were not returned in time for today's show. Both were mentioned by Chief White in yesterday's interview. What are your objections to the content in this policy,
2: Lisa Calderon? Well, regarding content, I think that there's a lot of room for improvement. So one of it, uh concerns is the term reasonable and necessary. Um, the previous policy used the term necessary and reasonable. Hmm. So basically they switched around the terms.
0: And that's a big deal because?
2: (laughs) Exactly. I mean, how is a policy changed if you simply just switch the words around? Also, how do you define reasonable and necessary? So within the policy, um, it's a circular uh, logic because reasonable and necessary is used to define reasonable and necessary.
0: So essentially, you're saying there there really was not a change by switching these two words. That's right. When... The new use of force policy uh, was was released. There were no community meetings. Um, there have been three community forums added after the department's release of the use of force draft. Two of them have since been held. Chief White says this policy is still a draft and information and ideas from the forums could be incorporated. Why do you have a problem with that?
2: It's an afterthought. And this policy impacts anyone who comes in contact with a police officer uh, where uh, use of force could occur. So if this policy is impacting Denver residents, but we didn't have a meaningful opportunity to give input as to how this would affect us, then it lacks community legitimacy.
0: And you mentioned uh, the Denver Sheriff's Department uh, recently was far more inclusive when it revamped its policies last year. And we played a clip of your comment to Chief White where you complained that he was the sole arbiter. And I want to hear uh, his response.
3: I'm not the sole arbiter, as I related was. I wasn't interested in sitting down with a group of individuals like Lisa Calderon and others that represent a small contingent of the entire community. I was interested in hearing the voice of the entire community, and that's why uh, that policy was the result of me going to hundreds of meetings, talking to thousands of individuals. That draft is is the the voices. Of the entire community, or at least the thousands of individuals that we spoke to, versus the eight or nine or ten individuals that were sitting at the table that allegedly represents another, maybe a hundred or two individuals.
0: If Chief White spoke to hundreds or thousands of individuals, as he says he, is t- he and his team have done, doesn't that count as community representation?
2: Well, first of all, I don't know what he means about. Uh, People like Lisa Calderon, Um, if he means mothers whose children have been brutalized by Denver police, that's me. Um, If he means um, people with critical voices at the table, yes, that's me. Um, You know, I think dismissing those of us who have ongoing concerns um, really says that you don't want to hear from all of the segments of society um, who, who can weigh in. So that's the first thing. Um, the other is that, um, the independent monitor was excluded. And the independent monitor's office was created as a result of, uh, the shooting of Paul Childs, Paul Childs, a uh, 15-year-old mentally disabled black boy. Um, and so these changes that are being made in the use of force policy are really paid for by the blood of community members. So, You know, bringing us in after the fact and saying that he's gone to all of these meetings over multiple years um, just doesn't ring true in terms of an inclusive community process.
0: Why do you feel uh, your arguments against the policy are indeed representative of more than than just your group?
2: You know, in these turbulent political times where we are concerned about autocratic government, um, that gives us the... Uh, illusion of input, we really should be suspect when somebody says, we know best for you and we're not going to um, take your meaningful input into account. So, you know, the fact that he created community forums only after, um, People like me and others, uh, including journalists, um, said that, hey, you need to really open up this process. So really my question to Chief White is how many people does it take for you, act, for you to actually listen to the current concerns that we have?
0: But Denver's use of force policy in draft form is clearly laid out with established national best practices, and it's, it has similar language as other policies from departments around the country.
2: Denver is actually catching up where other departments are. So, for example, um, I think it's great that the policy finally prohibits shooting into moving vehicles, but other jurisdictions have had that For a while now, including New York, other policies or other jurisdictions have had policies that um, have been restrictive on when to use force. They have been clearer on defining what reasonable or necessary uh, means. They've been clear on the amount of force that have been used. So all of these are pretty vague in Denver's policy.
0: Lisa Calderon of the Colorado Latino Forum. Uh, We're speaking about the draft policy of Denver's use of force policy that is currently uh, being looked at. Are there any parts of this policy you feel are acceptable?
2: Well, I think it is a start of a model uh, uh, policy. We are certainly not there. And in order to get to that model policy, you need uh, a variety of voices. So, for example, with the Denver Sheriff's Department, we had... Um, not only uh, deputies represented, but also city attorneys and community members and, and mental health folks. So um, the fact that uh, Denver um, chose to have this kind of secret process and then um, claim that emailing comments is the same as a, robo- a robust community process um, says to me that they really aren't genuinely interested in, in what we have to say.
0: One of the points that was uh, mentioned yesterday was the use of tasers. Denver's independent monitor, Nick Mitchell, has concerns about them as well, particularly that they don't show up in the new policy. And we asked Chief White about that.
3: The monitor looked that out original policy, which was 30 pages, uh, and actually kind of looking at looking at 21st, and everyone likes to use, uh, they like to remind me of the 21st century, the President Obama's 21st century task force when it's convenient for them. So, obviously, the monitor referred to it also. But that, that, that task force also recommended that policies need to be shortened and more concise. So, that is the more concise policy as it relates to philosophically what we're about. And all those ancillary policies will speak to tasers and all the other weapons that officers have.
0: So if I heard him correctly, essentially, there are all kinds of policies out there. This use of force uh, is kind of a, a, a encompassing all of that. And then there'll be other policies that will be added kind of behind that. What, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Well, the Department of Justice came out uh, in its findings of the Baltimore Police Department um, where Freddie Gray was killed and said, essentially, you need to have a not only a concise policy, but an inclusive and comprehensive one. And so officers shouldn't be going to different manuals um, to look at use of force in different pieces of um, documents. The other thing is, the policy isn't just written for the police. It's also for the community. So if I have to go and look at seven or ten different documents just to understand what their TASER policy is. Um, That leaves the policy lacking. And
0: your group has been vocal in cases where police were investigated for possible excessive use of force. Denver's district attorney has not filed charges in those cases. Do you think this new policy will make clearer when charges should be filed?
2: I don't think it answers that question. Um, Our hope is that You know, use of force, excessive force um, can be avoided. And I think this policy does emphasize de-escalation. You know, that said, it doesn't say when officers will be held accountable. If the standard is still an officer reasonably fears for his life, um, that's all they have to say. And what happens when the civilian also reasonably feared for their life? Well, too bad. They'll, They'll they're dead or they're seriously wounded and they have no recourse.
0: At the conclusion of yesterday's interview, we asked Chief White what he wouldn't budge on with regards to the new policy, and we'll pose that question to you in regards to your concerns. As a citizen, what is so important that you won't budge on?
2: We won't budge on a policy that impacts the public being created in secret. We will continue to push for a working group to further examine this policy um, it's not good enough to say we'll take your input, we'll take your input, and then we'll present you with what we think is the best because we don't know what input was received, what input was rejected. So we're going to continue to push for a transparent and accountable process.
0: Lisa Calderone, thanks for joining us.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Lisa Calderon is the co-chair of the Colorado Latino Forum. She joined us in response to yesterday's appearance by Denver Police Chief Robert White to discuss the department's new use of force policy. You can listen and read a transcript from that interview on CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. The Trans-Siberian Extreme is the longest cycling race on Earth. It crosses Russia over 24 days and covers 5,700 miles. The total elevation gain is like biking to the top of Mount Everest 10 times. And only one man from the U.S. plans to compete this year. Matt Carnell is a graduate student at Colorado State University. He's biked across the United States twice and sees this next race as his greatest test yet. He spoke to my colleague, Andrew Dukakis.
4: Matt, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. This sounds like a huge challenge. Um, Tell me what a day out there is going to look like for you.
5: Oh, a day out there is morning to night, night to morning is just going to be pedaling across Siberia. Um, There'll be a lot of things going on in my mind as far as a work day. I mean, I like to treat these types of things as a work day. I mean, you get up, you prep as far as the nutrition and then... My support crew will be monitoring probably my power output. They'll also be tracking my hydration and nutrition throughout the day, just to make sure I'm staying on track as far as fuel. And then I'm just going to focus on riding. Uh, I hope to take in all the sights and the sounds and the smells and the competition that's going to be there. So it's going to be it's going to be a challenge, but it's it's something I'm looking forward to.
4: What's the scenery going to be like?
5: Uh, First time to Russia, so I'm not sure. But I actually just met a Russian student just a little bit ago, and he told me it's going to be a lot of prairie, um, a little bit of rolling terrain. I would say actually a lot of rolling terrain. There's only one big climb that I would consider big in comparison to what we have here in Colorado. If you've traveled much in the United States, I would consider it very similar to crossing the United States in the in the in the center. Mm-hmm. Uh, going east to west or west east, and then also dropping down a little bit in the south, um, very similar to the the trees that are in Mississippi and Louisiana. I have a feeling that's what it's going to be like, but I've never been there, so we'll uh, we'll see what it looks like.
4: And uh, the race uh, this is the third year uh, the race will be held. It starts in July. Is the weather going to be warm?
5: That's what they tell me, but I'm I'm planning for uh, I plan it for anything. They've told me that it's supposed to be between 41 and 100 degrees, depending on what climate we're going to be in and then also what day.
4: And how do you train for biking across Russia?
5: That's a question that's been answered or asked many, many times over the last month. And as a cycling coach over the last 10 years and having ridden across the United States a couple of times, the first thing is mental preparation. It's it's a lot of visualization just to get me mentally prepared with what I'm going to go through. I mean, I just want to be extremely set mentally for the task at hand, and, and the task at hand being from getting from point A to point B. And then it's riding my bike a lot.
1: I How I have much? four bikes.
5: <laughs> How much? This past week, I did 30 hours. The week before that, I did 30 hours. Before I get to the event, I hope to have... I have a goal in mind that if I can do 300 miles three days in a row in 18 hours or less each day with six hours of sleep, I'll be ready. So there's a lot of riding outside. There's a lot of riding on a trainer. There's a lot of gym work that goes involved, that's involved. There's a lot of nutrition that's going to be watched. Being in exercise physiology, I'm looking at every single detail um, for the event because, it really think I really think it comes down to two words with something like this. It's durability, will my body stay together? And then it's efficiency. Is my body going to be efficient enough to fuel me through the stages? And did and you say
4: I, um being involved in exercise physiology is that what you're studying in school?
5: Yes, ma'am. I just love experiencing this kind of stuff of taking your physical or your physicality to its limits. And that's what, that's what really drives to me, to, to these types of things.
4: How did you first get involved in cycling?
5: I've had nine surgeries. And after one of the surgeries on my knees, my uh, doctor told me I'd never do something again. And I took up cycling to strengthen my knees to run a sub-three-hour marathon. And after that in 2001, just to prove that doctor that I could get back in the physical shape to do something, Uh, I just took a hold of, or I'd say cycling took a hold of me and really never let go. Uh, After I bought that bike to start rehabbing the knee, I just really gravitated towards the bike.
4: And when did you start to focus on it as a career?
5: Um, I'd say in 2008 when I lost my corporate job. I wanted to become a professional triathlete and... I made the transition out to Colorado in 2009 and really focused on that for a couple years until my shoulder blew out. And then I took on the the endurance, endurance cycling in my coaching business, and I just really focused on that because I was in the asphalt and oil industry for a decade, mm-hmm. and I really didn't have a passion for that. And my passion lied outside in health and fitness, so it made a really good fit for me.
4: And eventually, you rode across the United States. Why did you want to do that?
5: <laughs> in two thousand eight, when I lost everything, I really lost everything. Um, I had a lot of, a lot of history of suicide and depression in my family, and I had about twelve hundred dollars to my name. or rented a, rented a vehicle, drove back to my mom's house, and I had about six hundred bucks left, and I decided. Well, if I can't find a job, I'm going to do something that I love, and that's riding my bike. So on July 11th, 2010, I decided that I was just going to ride across the United States twice and see if I could do it on 600 bucks, just to prove to myself that I could do it and then also get out of those thoughts and clear my head. And in 2010, I went 101 days across the United States from east to west and down the west coast, on $600. And I was out there for 101 days and covered 7,500 miles. Mm. So that's that's kind of my first trip when I got across the United States.
4: And did you get what you wanted to out of it?
5: Yeah, there's, there's nothing like riding your bike across the United States. I mean, in 2008, we had a great depression and the, uh, the recession really put people in dire times. And I was one of those individuals. And when I went across the United States to get what I wanted out of it, seeing new people and seeing new faces every single day and taking in an education that I will have for the rest of my life in three months is well worth any education that I could have got at a university setting You know, prior to that event. The, the people in the United States saved me. I mean, they gave me hope. They gave me faith to continue on the journey. And the people that I met, uh, I still keep in touch with some of them today. So, you know, to see a sunrise and see a sunset every single day, to wake up in a new place and to travel, but to do it in your own backyard and understand the United States has so many beautiful places and so many beautiful people, it was it was well worth every single dollar that I had or I didn't have, because there was a lot of people that helped me out there when I was there.
4: So fast forward to now. Um... Why did you choose to apply to the Trans-Siberian Extreme? It's the longest cycling race on Earth.
5: Yeah, some people call me a little crazy. I like to call myself normal. I'm just, just another normal Coloradan, I would say, because a lot of us out here do this kind of stuff. So when I saw this come across my email, and I was talking to a friend of mine that I played college baseball with, he goes, I really think you should think about putting your, your athletic CV in to try to attempt this, you've already done something similar to this, but you did it solo. This has support. It's a little bit longer. It's about 1200 miles longer, but as far as caloric expenditure, we, we were like, "Eh, let's see what we could do. So I put everything down on paper, uh, as far as of what I've done, regardless of any racing, because I didn't have any like big races because I've been trying to put my life back together and I didn't really have money to race. I sent my CV into the director and I said, you know, I'm just going to let you know, I don't have races on under my belt, but I've done these pretty elaborate things that are very similar to your event, Would you, you know, just take my CV. And he said, yeah, just send it over and be optimistic. And I did that and the latter part of November. And then on December 10th, I got an email that they chose me for the event. So it's pretty exciting. I, I really am looking forward to the opportunity.
4: Just the entry fee for this race is $20,000 and your GoFundMe page says you need $100,000 to make the whole thing happen. You've raised about 8000 so far. How likely is it, do you think, that you're going to be able to make this actually happen?
5: Um, I don't know. I mean, I never thought I'd get across the United States the first time. And there's a lot of people that doubted me then, um, to make this happen. I, I, I think there's a lot of good people once they hear the story and once they see that what I'm doing and I, I think it'll happen. I mean, the hundred thousand dollars, I don't need a hundred thousand, but I think on a budget, it's going to cost probably 45,000 to get this done. And then the rest I want to just give to kids for bikes Um, will it, will the funds come through? I'm not sure.
4: If you finish, not only would you be the first American to do that, but in the two previous years, the race has existed. Only two solo riders have actually crossed the finish line. What makes you think you can get this done?
5: That's a good question. Um, I like to think I'm a little bit mentally tough, um, to do this considering what I've done. I mean, I've spent a lot of time by myself thinking about what it's going to take. When I want to do something, I'm going to set my mind and I'm going to get it done. I've always been the individual whether it be in high school with stuff or college baseball or my job whenever I worked in corporate. I was the guy they go to to get things done. And I will do whatever it takes in my power to get across to Russia on on two wheels. The only thing that's really going to stop me is if my body breaks down. That's where the durability comes in. I've got a lot of reasons why I wanna do this. And the you know, the reasons are probably tenfold. I mean, I I've got people that are battling cancer right now up in Omaha, Nebraska, that just got back from Germany for misdiagnosis and he can't ride. But I rode with him in Colorado Springs once out to Lyman and it was hundred and fifty miles. And I wanna do that again with him and I'm going to ride this for him. I'm going to ride this for my friends that have passed away. I'm only 37 years old and I've had three baseball friends of mine pass. And, you know, I want to be able to inspire their children because they're not here to do so. And as long as I can, as long as my, my body's able to do something, my mind's going to tell me to do it. And I'm going to go for this a hundred percent. And if, if the body breaks down, that's the only thing that's really going to back me out of this. So
4: Matt, are you in this to finish or
5: to win? I don't do anything not to win. I mean, let's 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 cut to the chase here. I mean, I, I'd love to win, and uh, just to finish in itself is going to be an accomplishment, considering the distance and considering I'd be the only American. However, I don't do anything less than hundred uh, percent. Yeah, I want to be on the podium. I want to be able to represent the United States in another country, and I want to do it on the high end. I don't want to do anything that's going to bring anybody down, and I I want to do it to show the world that American is is in ultra cycling. And you know, it's it's about having fun out there, but it's also there is a competition, there is a race to be won, and if it's going to race, we're gonna we're gonna race it, and we're gonna train to win.
4: Well, Matt, good luck to you. Yeah, thank you. And thanks so much for joining us.
5: Yeah, thank you for your time.
0: Matt Carnell is a graduate student and cycling coach in Fort Collins. He spoke to my colleague, Andrew Dukakis. He's the only man from the U.S. planning to compete in the Trans-Siberian Extreme, the longest bike race in the world across Russia. It starts in July. This is the sound of a new profession for Jordan Temkin from Fort Collins. It's not a dental drill. It's a drone racing through an outdoor obstacle course on a windy day until it touches down. Temkin is among the first drone racers to collect a salary, train, and travel to competitions. That's thanks to his recent win in the inaugural Drone Racing League's Championship, which was broadcast on ESPN. Welcome to
6: the program. Thanks for having me.
0: What do the drones you fly look like? You have one in front of us here. Can you describe what it looks like?
6: Sure. It's uh, made of four propellers and a, and a couple motors. You know, it's pretty okay. simple electronically. Uh, we like them because there's no mechanical moving objects like a helicopter. It's just all electronics and, you know, it, you just solder everything up and it flies. It's built for speed, I'm assuming. Yeah, exactly.
0: What, what does a drone race course look like? I mean, how does that work?
6: Um, they can get pretty elaborate, you know, because we can now fly in the three dimensions. Yeah. You can really just do anything you want. You can just fly.
0: And this thing is the size of basically about a hand, essentially, maybe a little mm-hmm. bit bigger. It's not that
6: large. No, no. This one's a small, you know, pocket sized We call it three inch. Uh, it's based on the propeller size. What we race generally is five inch. It's slightly larger. Um, You know, it's about a foot by a foot. And
0: so you use goggles, video mm-hmm. goggles, and so essentially that puts you in the driver's seat, essentially, of this drone. Describe that
6: feeling. Um, it's it's absolutely amazing. So, yeah, we have a little... It's a wireless security camera out front. You know, it's low-tech, cheap, and we wear these... Uh, goggles that just feed that video right back to us so it's it's just like you're sitting inside the drone
0: the video from the drone racing league championship on espn it's not online uh but there's a similar event uh in the uk called iSeries drone racing and this is a recent event it's indoors with neon lights on the obstacles and the drones have lights on them
7: luke's still out in front
1: yeah luke's got a comfortable lead followed by brett and then leo's finishing up in third oh, oh brett's down brett's in brett the tunnel that's a big crash he is not going to be happy about that. You can see from his reaction, he is not happy. So he's in third. They're place. speaking
0: about is racers you, Luke Bannister, Brett Collins, and Leo Whitfield. It's a very fast-paced thing with the announcers trying to keep up, and you've got four video screens that you're looking at. Is it like that in, in at these actual races that you do?
6: Yeah, I mean, when you're in the pilot seat, though, you have the goggles on, so you're all focused in on being in the drone. You know, so it's, it's up to us to see the
0: four screens exactly. and to, to hear the, the announcers.
6: Luke Bannister, I've actually raced him before, and he is one of the fastest out there. Yeah, he's one of the best. Oh, is, yeah.
0: Is there, a, is there a small camaraderie between you all? It must not be a huge number of people in this.
6: No, no. I mean, in terms of racers, there's thousands, right? But in terms of the professional top level, there's, you know, maybe half a hundred, if that. So... You know, it's, it's a very small community. Everyone knows each other. We've raced each other all around the world. And that's a huge part of it for me, too, is I get to travel, meet all sorts of cool people, and just geek out.
0: And, and now you have a sponsor, I'm assuming. You can do this as, as, a, as a living.
6: Yeah, exactly. It's, I mean, I can just dedicate all my time to my passion.
0: What does it uh, feel like for you as the racer that people are watching your videos intently and seeing how you turn and how you fly and how do you go through these obstacles?
6: You know, it's, it's kind of odd for me to have it out in the public like that because I've never experienced that before. As a skier, you know, I've always done things for myself. I do it because I love it. And, I mean, it still holds true, right? I still fly drones and race drones because I love to do so. But the more people we can show, the more people that we can get involved, the better.
0: And, and you're talking about how you don't, it's kind of weird having people see this. Mm-hmm. I, I understand you will sometimes drive out to beautiful places around Colorado or, or in the Southwest and, and just fly the drone. Mm-hmm. What's that like? Do you put on the goggles as well when you do that?
6: Yeah, yeah. So we call that freestyle flying. Okay. And it's, you know, when we're put in these machines, we can fulfill that dream that everyone has of, I want to be Superman and I want to fly through the air. So now that we have this ability that, didn't exist before um we just love going anywhere and everywhere and just showing the world what we can do it's kind of like uh like skating or you know those kind of extreme sports where you you go to a cool place and you make a video and say hey guys check out what i did it's the same idea
0: so essentially you're, you're basically being the base jumper but not mm. actually having to put yourself in danger.
6: exactly i lose a couple hundred bucks at the
0: worst <laughs> What does it mean to be a professional drone racer? Is that something that will continue, do you think? Is this kind of a, a test uh, for the new sport?
6: Yeah, it's just the beginning, really. it's It only started, let's say, two years ago, and it's really, really just ramping up so quickly. And um, yeah, it's it's just an incredible sport that hopefully more people get involved so it can get bigger and bigger.
0: What's the community like in Fort Collins of of drone racers? Is there a community up in Fort Collins?
6: Yeah, there's absolutely a huge community. There's um, people all over the state, everywhere, racing every weekend.
0: How fast do these drones go? Is it, uh, I mean, is it,
6: tell me the speed. So this little one I have here um, goes, let's say, 45. Uh, My racing drones that I I race at other events, uh, we've clocked at over 100 miles an hour.
0: Now is the desire to build drones that go faster and faster? Can they go faster and faster? or Is there a point where well, that's it, that's the speed that you're going to get with this, this drone?
6: Yeah, once you get to about 115, it's really hard to break that barrier just because aerodynamics get involved. But it's, you know, a part of it is they're so light, they can go in one direction, turn around 180, and hairpin turn in a split second. You know, it's there's the acceleration is so little because there's little inertia. So they can just turn around and split. It's like watching a hummingbird.
0: Yeah, and and when you hit the you know an obstacle, does mm-hmm. the thing shatter? Are you out, or can you you know recover and and fly again? Let's say like a race car who loses a tire.
6: Uh, if you're lucky, you can recover. Mostly, it's the plastic propellers blow up on you, but they're they're built out of carbon fiber. we they're designed to take a hit.
0: And and finally, uh, since you started collecting a salary last mm-hmm. month, it's a one year contract. If you don't win again this year, is it back to, to odd jobs or, or racing drones on the side, or what's what's the future?
6: Um, for me, you know, I've always – I used to freelance – do freelance photography and stuff, so I've always kind of just followed my passion in terms of making money. So, you know, I'm still going to drone race. I'm going to do everything I can to keep doing this for the rest of my life.
0: What do you think is the future of this sport?
6: Um, well, DRL, uh, Drone Racing League on ESPN, I think is a step to the future. You know, it's showing the masses – there's this cool new sport out there. Check it out. Um, you know, get involved. So that's one step. And I really do think it can one day be something like uh, F1 racing or NASCAR, right, where you tune in on some weekend just to watch the racing.
0: Jordan, thanks for being here.
6: All right, thanks for having me.
0: Jordan Temkin of Fort Collins is a drone racing league champion. We talked about the world of professional drone racing. See what it looks like racing from the pilot's point of view. At CPRnews.org. And finally today, do you remember Cabin Creek? It's the Colorado ghost town that was for sale on Craigslist. It's off US 36, east of Denver, in near Byers. My colleague Ryan Warner
7: reported on it last summer. James Johnson owns the property now. His listing includes the old gas station, a cafe, RV park, private shooting range, and... The old motel is about two thousand twenty three hundred square feet. There's a little house that's about uh, thousand square feet, two bedroom, one bath. The town has been abandoned for decades, and there are rumors it's haunted. Johnson told KDVR Television he wants to sell so he and his wife can retire.
0: So we're ready to uh, get out of town even farther than this.
7: Well, the town's
0: owner, James Johnson, recently wrote on Facebook that the town has sold. He didn't release the name of the new owners, but wrote, quote, I can honestly say they're really amazing people. I believe they see the magic of this incredible place and will be a good fit and stored as I hand over the reins. Well, we wanted to know what it was like to buy an entire town. So Ryan Warner sat down with Chris Seegers last year. In 2015, his family bought the town of Hillside in southern Colorado, and he said it was actually pretty easy to buy the town.
8: The town has always been fairly vibrant. It's got a post office and a little general store. And so I kind of grew up spending summers with my grandparents up there and um, saw a lot of different owners that own Hillside. And, um, you know, we'd go over there and get a candy bar, get a soda. When we were bailing hay, we'd go over there and, you know, get a drink and and that sort of thing. And so uh, about a year and a half, two years ago, I was just actually driving to the ranch and and saw, hey, the town's for sale. It was just a big real estate sign. and. <laughs> Um, so drove past it, kind of not thinking much about it, but, um, it just kind of bugged me a little bit. And so I I called the real estate agent and we, and we took a tour and, and kind of moved from there. The for
7: sale sign said for sale an entire town.
8: I think it just said for sale. And then once I pulled up the listing, it, you know, it kind of said, Hey, town of Hillside is for sale and here are the specs behind it. Um, and and one of the real reasons we were interested is, um, you know, just kind of the hit in my history there. I went to high school in Westcliff, graduated in two thousand four, and um, we're we're actually living in Texas right now. But that's really Hillside's really my home. That's what I call home. Um, and, and so when I started communicating with some of the people, there was a lot of fear of hey, if someone buys it, they're probably going to shut the post office down and get rid of the little store, and and we're worried about that. So. Um, so it was really interesting kind of from the get-go.
7: Yeah, let me say that the price tag included a post office, livery stable, corral, guest house, two beaten-down cottages, and a zip code. You paid $285,000, according to the Fremont County Clerk and Recorder, and there are about 100 residents in the area. How did
8: your family react
7: to the news that you wanted to buy Hillside, Colorado? <laughs>
8: That's a great question. Um, so I got really excited about it, came home and told my wife, and, and I think she thought I was a little bit crazy. Um, but it, it really fit. So so a few years ago, four years ago, my parents purchased a bed and breakfast in Westcliff, and uh, my wife and I, Tara, had graduated from CSU, and, and we said, hey, you know, we'd like to help you run this thing. And um, so they allowed us to, and then we we eventually started just buying in and really got familiar just with the lodging industry and just saw the need for um, for more lodging providers in Southern Colorado. There's a tremendous amount of visitors that come and, and it's just a little bit underdeveloped in Colorado. And so when I when I looked at Hillside, I really just saw the potential. I said, man, we got to, first of all, maintain community because this is what I call my community. But there, all these other buildings, um, they're beautiful buildings. Uh, they need some TLC, but there's a lot of Kind of handmade architecture within the buildings. So if we can pull that out and revive these buildings, I think this is a beautiful location that we can, you know, we can use as vacation rental cottages. Oh. Um, so at that point, my wife started saying, "Okay, let, you know, let's run the numbers, let's run the metrics on it and see what it looks like." And and we ran the numbers and and it started making sense. And um, yeah, so but she, I think her reaction was, "You're crazy. Let's let's put a little bit more time into the data." <laughs>
7: And you talked about getting buy-in from some of the other folks in the area because there are residents around Hillside. Um, how, do about, how do they feel about, you know, these like short-term rentals?
8: Yeah, that's a good question. So so kind of just to backtrack a little bit, um, in the 90s there was a gentleman who bought Hillside and just did kind of a lot of bad things, tore some historical buildings down and just kind of... Um, Infuriated the local residents. So the people who we purchased it from were um a few couples that had gotten together and said we want to maintain the integrity of Hillside. Um, But they had just realized, hey, they're getting older and hey, we want to bring someone in with some energy and with some vision. And we, I mean, we came in and said, this is our plan. We want to maintain the integrity of it, but we want to, you know, uh provide a business model that makes money so we can bring events and concerts and that sort of thing back to the community.
0: Chris Seegers speaking to Ryan Warner last summer. Seegers bought the entire town of Hillside, Colorado, for around $250,000 in 2015. Another Colorado ghost town, Cabin Creek in eastern Colorado, was recently bought by an undisclosed buyer. Our theme was written and performed by Kip Kipper at Coop Studios in Boulder. Follow us on Twitter at Colorado Matters and connect with us on Facebook at CPR News. I'm Nathan Evel. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.